cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, Cyber Colleagues. I'm Mark Shine, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marsh McLennan Agency and the host of Chatting Cyber Podcast. Um, welcome back to our two cyber celebrities, Sherry Davidoff, CEO of LMG Securities, and Michael Kleinman, Special Counsel of Freed Frank's Data Strategies, Securities, and Privacy Practice. So welcome back for part two of today's conversation. I am truly excited to have you both um, here, but to really get into the weeds now. So in our first conversation, we left off really around ransomware. Now the million dollar question that I get almost on a daily basis is, Mark, do I pay the ransom or not? Sherry, Mike, what's the advice to the listeners? Well, put yourself in the shoes of these organizations. And unfortunately, some of your listeners have probably been there. You walk into work, all the computers are down, email is down, people are yelling that they can't get things done. Um, you don't know what's going on. You have to get back up and running. For some organizations like businesses, it can be life or death. They need to get back up and running. So your first question is, do we have backups, right? And the problem is that these criminal gangs, you know, these, these again, they're not 13-year-olds in their mom's basements. These are organized crime groups. They will deliberately delete your backups. They will find your backups. They delete your backups, and then they encrypt that whole server. So quite often, we find backups are not available. Even if they are, sometimes they haven't been tested, or you may find um, that they don't cover everything that you need. They're not happening as frequently. So often in the negotiation process, you want to start engaging the attackers as though you're going to pay the ransom no matter what, but you want to slow them down and see if you can uh, recover fully from backups before you stop communicating with them. So that's the first thing to check. The second thing you check is, are there free decryptors available? Um, there are quite, if you go to nomoreransom.org, there's a list of decryption tools that work on many popular strains of ransomware. Now, caveat here is that when you use any kind of free software, and particularly software that's designed to work with criminal uh, programs, um, there's no guarantees. Uh, you could end up with corruption or something like that. But I have seen many people successfully use free decryptors to get some of their data back. Um, also, there can be some benefits to working with law enforcement. I've received um, decryption tools that were in the works that law enforcement had, and they provided them to our clients uh, so that they were able to get the vast majority of their data back. And again, both of these things take time. Um, it's really important along the way that you not take an infected computer and put it back on your network, because once the infected computer is back on your network, the criminals may try to get back into it. Things will try to get things will start encrypting again. So there's a whole process, um, which we're, we actually talk about in our upcoming book, Ransomware Response, on the order of operations and how you safely bring things online. So if you try those things, backups and free decryptors, and none of that works, you may be in a position where you have to pay a ransom to get your data back. And if you do that, as we talked about a little bit in the last episode, you wanna ask for proof of life. That means like in a traditional kidnapping, you're not gonna pay a bunch of money to get a hostage back if the hostage is dead, right? 
So the same thing is true with criminals. And while some of the criminals are very good at what they do, they can decrypt your files. In other cases, these are amateurs that are renting access to some ransomware as a service platform and maybe they've goofed, maybe they've screwed it up, they've lost an encryption key. So you send them a sample file, they decrypt it for you to show you that yes, it is like technically possible for them to give you your data back. Um, and that's, that's the proof of life process if you are just trying to recover your data. Then as we talked about, um, and I, we can go into this a little more later, there's the flip side. We now see 70% uh, of cases, they're threatening to publish your data to the world unless you um, pay, a fine, uh, pay a fee. And in fact, it's starting to become an automated part of the process. The NetWalker utility advertised as a feature um, that it would automatically steal data and create a blog and automatically post that data to the blog according to your specifications if you're the criminal. So we're seeing this happen more and more and they want you to pay in order to keep it quiet. I have some special concerns with that because I think once you pay, you're a target going forward. You're never gonna keep this quiet. You're just funding cyber criminals. But there's been a trend over the past year where the data subjects, if you have people's personal information, they might wanna know that you did everything you could to keep their information online. And so politically speaking, there's a lot of pressure to pay the criminals to keep it off of their websites. So that's uh, another choice that we all have to make. So could working with law enforcement, could that be seen as a negative instead of a positive or could it only be seen as a positive? Well, Michael, maybe I'll let you jump in about your experience and then I can share mine. Sure. You know, I, I think it it is a difficult question. Um, I think that on balance, given some of the, you know, increased focus on policing of post-breach activities, um, and pun not intended there, um, I think that the, the, the direction that companies should be thinking about going in is contacting law enforcement, um, but knowing who to contact. So, you know, I, I can think of a, a past matter where a, uh, an incident occurred in a very well-to-do suburb and the company that suffered the incident called the local police. Um, you know, that's, that's great. A significant crime has occurred uh, but the, you know, local suburban police, and maybe this is the, at the extreme, but you know, that's not who you need and it's a waste of time. Um, what you do need to, to do is identify ahead of time as part of your incident response plan. You know, where are you geographically? Where are all the places that you are? Where's your center of operations and your headquarters? Um, and, and try to identify the FBI agent in charge in of the field office that has jurisdiction over where you are. And that's something that you can find pretty easily on the internet. Um, and I think there's been a really big community relations push by the FBI to uh, go out and meet business leaders in the community and have that proverbial cup of coffee. And it's, it's really not a bad idea at all um, to have all of your ducks in a row, including um, who you're gonna contact at law enforcement if you need to. Um, I think there is a concern or there has been a concern in the past that 
um, law enforcement will come in and take all of your your artifacts and take over the investigation. Um, but I think you know, Sherry, we've talked a little bit about that, and and maybe that's you know um, a, a fear and a parade of horribles that doesn't really exist in reality. Um, and the other thing is, from a from a legal perspective, law enforcement can come in and help you sort of get organized and, and before you have to um, go out and make breach notification with less than perfect information, there are carve outs in, in many if not most of the data breach notification laws that say, look, if you're undertaking an investigation with law enforcement, we understand that, that that's a perfectly good reason to delay notification when a crime has been committed. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, I can tell you in my career, I've had honestly nothing but positive experiences working with law enforcement. I'm a geek, uh, data breaches geek specifically. And so I think back to like the 1980s, there was a very big um, case involving a subsidiary of Dun & Bradstreet that got hacked. And the FBI was called in to, the ha to handle the investigation. And in that case, the FBI spoke to the New York Times. You know, the case just really went out of their control. Um, we've seen other cases like the Choice Point case, a major breach where that was in California and it was reported to the sheriff's office and the sheriff said, okay, well, state of California law is that you need to notify and the company didn't want to notify and the sheriff's office said, no, you really need to do that. So um, that said, uh, I have, the FBI learned huge lessons from the 80s. And these days they really work very hard to develop these positive and proactive relationships. And there's so much benefit that you can get especially if you develop those relationships in advance. And you can do that by getting involved in organizations like InfraGuard, which is a public-private partnership between the FBI and local community members. It's a really great way to get to know your local agents. Um, you can just call them, you can reach out to them. They're there to, to help foster these relationships. I had a case where a client was gonna get raided and um, they, because of an international cybercrime operation that, that they had happened to have a server that was involved. And because we knew the agents who were involved in the operation, they gave us a proactive heads up and they trusted us to not tip off the criminal. We were able to work with them to ensure business continuity. I mean, that is the value of establishing these relationships. And then specifically in ransomware cases, if you're giving them information, that helps them better track these bad guys down. We've seen the bust recently of NetLocker, of Emotet, um, of Egregor, and uh, that's because of so many people communicating with law enforcement. We can help uh, reduce the risk throughout the system. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, so it sounds like cooperating or getting to know, you know the government agencies would be a good idea, and perhaps understanding some of the advisories that they're putting out would be a good idea as well. We understand, you know, uh, late in 2020 that uh, the Treasury Department uh, with OFAC had recently put out some advisories with respect to ransomware and, you know, what businesses should do, should they pay, what um, some of the forensic firm's responsibilities were. Mike, would you, would you mind, you know, chatting about what that uh, OFAC advisory was and what some of the key takeaways for our listeners are? Sure. So, uh, as Mark, as you said, in October 2020, um, Treasury's OFAC group uh, put out an advisory um, which targeted ransomware and was specifically targeted to um, 
advisors who assist victims of ransomware attacks uh, as to their responsibilities in assisting those victims. Um, and the, the advisory specifically name-checked insurers, um, cybersecurity vendors, ransomware negotiators. Um, and the key, I think, is... It, the key takeaway one is there's nothing new here from a, a legal perspective. This is an advisory. Um, it's an advisory that provides further explanation on a cybersecurity sanctions program that has already been in place at OFAC. Um, but what it does signal is increased attention um, commensurate with an increase in ransomware attacks that has only accelerated during COVID. Um, and what's probably, as many people have been saying, is going to be a more active enforcement regime, you know, across the federal government under the Biden administration. Um, the advisory uses uh, a new term, which, um, to my knowledge, no one is really talking about except for Mark and me in an article uh, forthcoming uh, that the two of us have, have written, which uh, folks can look out for in the New York Law Journal. Um, but there's this, this sanctions nexus. If you are going to make a ransomware payment or assist someone in making a ransomware payment um, that has a sanctions nexus to a banned individual entity or geographical region, um, you can find yourself strictly liable for violating OFAC sanctions cybersecurity program. Um, you know, and the, the, the dangers there are you can run screens, and you should, um, when you're deciding to make a ransomware payment. Um, you can run screens across OFAC's website. They produce, you know, there's a, a list called the SDN list that you want to look out for that will have um, cyber groups, um, digital wallets, addresses, locations. Um, you can then use off-the-shelf software to go even further. Um, but the danger is you can run all those screens and the way that, that cyber criminals are splitting and rerouting ransomware payments, particularly as Bitcoin becomes more normalized and sort of a you know mainstream method of payment, you're never going to know 100%. And so how do you get comfort when after the fact you've done everything you possibly can and yet the person or the wallet or the group that you've made a payment to or assisted making a payment to turns up to be banned? Um, the advisory, and I think this gets back to the law, the law enforcement question, the advisory tells us one thing for sure. Um, if you notify law enforcement early and often, you will be given quote, significant credit in terms of mitigation after the fact if you do uh, wind up on OFAC's radar for a potential violation. The other thing we know for sure, um, if there was any question before about whether you could get what's called a, a specific license from OFAC to, which basically says there might be somebody who's on a ban list 
We never, nevertheless have reviewed this application on a case by case basis, and we will allow you to go ahead with the payment. The advisory now says there's a presumption of denial that those specific licenses are not going to be granted. And just given the timeframe that a license takes under other OFAC programs and the limited time you have to decide to make a ransomware payment, it's just, it's not feasible that you're even going to meet that timeline. So, you know, I think that's out the window. And so what the advisory really tells people is that they, you know, across all industries who are going to assist a victim is that you need to really do your own diligence as well in terms of who are you making a payment to? How have you notified law enforcement? Did you have a good plan in place ahead of time to deal with this potential OFAC issue? And how have you documented all the steps you've taken? And I think an interesting response to that is that in the earlier part of this month, the New York Department of Financial Services issued guidance to some of the folks that they are responsible for regulating. And NYDFS is responsible for financial institutions as well as insurers licensed to do business in New York. And this particular guidance speaks to those insurers who are licensed in New York. And that guidance specifically calls out the OFAC advisory and doubles down on the OFAC advisory's recommendation that you do not pay ransoms. And it also tells insurers two things. One, and I think this is going to be a significant issue going forward for insurance recovery, it tells insurers who are in the silent or gray area of coverage, so those insurers who are not specifically writing a cyber policy, but who might be writing a crime or kidnapping and extortion policy where there's some potential coverage, that they need to shore up the potential coverage issues that they may have. And by issues, I mean that they may be on the hook for increasing ransomware payments. So that's going to tamp down potential recovery for companies who have taken on insurance that they thought covered ransom, where maybe they had other policies or no policies that specifically cover cybersecurity. The other thing that this guidance is doing is it's telling insurers that they need to do due diligence on their insurance and their insurance OFAC screening policies or incident response plans. And then separately, if they're going to be involved in any way in reimbursement of ransom payments, they need to do their own OFAC screening as well. And what's driving this guidance, at least in the words of the NYDFS, is a desire to protect the insurance industry from risks posed by ransomware growth. And they refer to this as systemic. So it's something that they see, you know, and I think we've seen evidence in claims and tightening of underwriting standards. But now you've got a major regulator saying that they're concerned and putting insurers and the insurance industry on notice that there are steps you need to take. 
Well, Michael, I do worry that we're going to see some timing issues too, because sometimes an insurer might approve a ransom payment and the client will make the ransom payment maybe through a third-party vendor and then expect reimbursement from the insurer. And what happens if someone gets added to the OFAC list? And what does that mean for cyber coverage? I think there's all these, all these gray areas and issues like this that are going to come up over the next few years um, that I, I think we're going to see hammered out pretty publicly, I would imagine. And it's all while businesses oftentimes has the house on fire. So, I mean, I think when we spoke in our right. conversation, really the planning that our listeners are doing with folks like Mike with the documents, procedures, Sherry with kind of the technical assessments, doing bone scans, pen tests on an annual or quarterly basis really helps kind of mitigate the overall loss at the end of the day. I mean, I sit on the board of the Pondeman Institute and we've identified should there be first party mitigation responsibility put in place, oftentimes, roughly about $2 million of overall cost could be mitigated. So what you guys are saying is only backed up by the data that the Poneman has uh, already staffed. So I, I, I appreciate that and I thank you for your comments on it. Um, move, kind of thinking, well, not necessarily moving forward, but sticking with the OFAC advisory, but really now going back into more of the actual types of data that organizations are now looking for when they get in, or rather when a ransomware attack is deployed. And Sherry, we had spoken earlier about the exposure of data and some of the latest trends and things of that nature. Has there been any success with the U.S. government or other governments uh, taking down some of these threat actors? Well, yes and no. I mean, we've actually seen quite a bit of progress just this year. One of the good things, the bright spots about 2021 right now, um, we've seen a partial takedown of the NetWalker uh, ransomware as a service gang. Um, the same thing with eGregor, they're likely the successor to Maze. Um, and we've seen takedowns of the Emotech gang. That is probably the most impactful. So let me hit those uh, in order. Um, first of all, when you see a quote takedown of a ransomware as a service gang, typically it is not the entire organization. And what happened in these cases is we're seeing arrests of some of the affiliates. Those are the customers of the ransomware as a service platform. And it appears also that um, we're seeing some takedowns of the hosting providers, the cloud providers that are hosting their portal systems. But there are still many members of these gangs that know exactly what they're doing that will just go off and form a whole new, probably better type of ransomware as a service going forward. So we're really playing a game of whack-a-mole there. With Emotet though, I would say this is quite significant, very substantial. So uh, for those of you that aren't super familiar with Emotet, it is um, it, it was probably the leading threat distributor over the past few years. It started off as a banking Trojan, which means it was designed to steal bank account passwords as you type them in, um, or credit card numbers. So aiming at that financial theft. And then the criminals realized, hey, if we can infect someone's computer and steal information they type into a web browser, we could also steal all their files. And if we can do that, we can control the computer. We can install other malware. And so Emotech developed this um, very robust business model involving affiliates where they would get on a computer, steal, we would automatically, in LMG Laboratory, we run experiments all the time. Once you get a computer infected with Emotet, within 15 minutes, your files are out the door and your, your passwords are out the door. They just steal them right from your web browsers. And then we'll see them giving access or probably selling or renting access to other cyber criminal groups. So we see TrickBot then get installed. 
and we see the Ryuk ransomware get installed because after they've stolen what they want, they will then nuke those systems with ransomware. So Emotet was a major way that cyber criminal gangs got into your organization and we would see all these follow on attacks based on it. So just the fact that, that um, members of this gang have been arrested and taken down, that's huge. Uh, we know that um, law enforcement has taken over the botnet and on April 25th, um, Emotet will uninstall itself from any infected computers that it is currently on. So kind of exciting. We will be monitoring the progress in our laboratory. I'm really interested to see what actually happens, but really great progress. Great news. So, so, so Sherry, when, when we have these exposure cases, is the guidance about paying any different than when it's a non-data uh, exfiltration type of incident? Well, the first thing is you have to determine if there has been data exfiltration. And these days you have to assume that there may have been. I mean, if criminals can get into your network and lock up your files, they certainly could have stolen it, right? And so the biggest mistake people make right off the bat is not treating it as a potential data breach. You absolutely wanna get an attorney involved. And um, mistakes I see people make are saying, oh, I'm gonna use my in-house counsel. No, you wanna have a chance of, uh, of having attorney-client privilege. You wanna be working with a cybersecurity specialist like Mike, who really knows what they're doing, um, understands those notification laws in all 50 states. And um, you may have forensic investigators like our team, you know, we're the geeks that advise the attorneys, but it's the attorneys that need to be driving that and asking the questions because a breach is a legally defined term. And in order to understand if a breach has occurred, you need to go through that legal process. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and coordination with, with experts like Sherry, you know, from, from my side, from the legal side is, is key. Um, because, you know, and, and this is a reason I, I really love this practice is you're really meeting at the intersection of technology and law. You cannot figure out what the breach is without the technology side. Um, so it's it's really key. As far as concerns, when when you haven't seen evidence, or I, I should say, when you either have not looked for, or your preliminary search shows that there's no evidence of data exfiltration, you know, so many times we've seen in the last you know year, year and a half. Um, that a company who's hit with ransomware will get hit again within you know six months, a couple of months, and there's very specific statistics out there. Um, you know, why not go in, um, encrypt data, do some careful staging of data exfil, cover your tracks, and then hit the same company again in three months, or give it to one of the affiliates that Sherry talked about. You know, barter. Barter on the market. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it really taking the time when you're exhausted, when you've gone through the initial, um, you know, 24, 48 hours, 10 days of, of dealing with the initial ransomware demands and, and um, getting your arms around the first stage of your incident response plan. Everyone needs to take a deep breath and then get ready for what's probably the more important part, which is making sure that you have an understanding of, of are there more backdoors? What evidence are you seeing? How sure are you? Um, and communicating that to your lawyers is key. 
Yeah, and Mike, the way that people recover is so key because, um, for example, we often see once you buy a decryption tool, the criminals want you to run it on all of your data. And you might think to yourself, can I trust this software that the criminals are giving me? The answer is no. We actually will run these in a lab first, and we often see the decryption utility that you have to use to recover your data often has malware built into it. And it's malware that the person holding you for ransom may not even know about. We actually think it's the software developers in most cases that are planting that back door, so a whole different group will then have access to your network. So it is so important as you go along to be threat hunting, to be reducing the risk, to be engaging the help of experts, and then, yeah, checking to make sure that there aren't those back doors. Um, I also wanted to, to uh, build on one of your points, Michael. I remember until about 2010, people used to say, well, there's no evidence of a breach, so we're just going to assume there wasn't and move on with our lives. And then uh, certainly high tech changed that. You know, in the healthcare industry, you have to presume that there has been a breach unless you can show otherwise. And that's key. That means if you don't have logs to show there wasn't a breach, then you have to notify as though there was. And I see what I think is over notification in some cases because either logs weren't being collected to begin with or in the process of formatting re and reinstalling things, the initial IT folks on site just accidentally erased them. So those are some key things that can really help you keep an investigation under control and reduce your costs. Thank you, Sharon. So I guess just sticking on the third party piece of it, Mike, from an indemnification standpoint, if I'm working with one of my vendors here in the US, a US uh, technology firm, and because of this US technology firm, my company got hit with ransomware, contractually, do I have a leg to stand on? It's a great question. And you know, probably the most important one for, for all of our clients. Um, the answer is a, a big unsatisfying, it depends. Um, and the reason for that is, uh, you have to go back to what we spoke about in, in part one of this podcast, which is that everyone should be aware of the specific, um, provisions in the relevant agreement and in particular, certain provisions that often just get glazed over when folks are, are reviewing contracts because they're not that interesting. Here, obviously, they are. And what I'm talking about there is a limitation of liabilities clause. You know, this is boilerplate, right? Which is the reason that everybody's eyes glaze over. Um, but this is key because limitation of liabilities clause in a well-negotiated contract will either, um, you know, depending on, on which party you are, let's say sticking with your question mark, you're the, the party who had business interruption um, and you're looking to your vendor, if there's a limitation of liability that's either uh, tied to the subscription revenue or some other payment that crosses hands, um, there's really nothing you can do about it. There's, you know, this, we're talking about limitation of liability, a concept that in sort of general tort law goes back, you know, um, a century or more. And so there's a lot of case law not in the cyber context 
specifically or just generally as a matter of law if you have liability limited to um one year's worth of revenue that's it um the other types of of limitations that are also you know equally matters of bedrock law are consequential damages um indirect damages lost profits and so you know if if you have uh orders that were unable to ship because your vendor went down um are you going to be able to cover your lost profits or are you just looking at replacement services and what is your duty to mitigate your losses do you have to go out and find a, a new distributor um immediately and try to cover those costs so you know there, there's a lot of um not only limitation on liability but that limitation in the agreement when you're first deciding how you're going to respond to the event um will also inform what you do they're always going to make the claim for an indemnification but you need to be reasonable um and putting my litigator hat on the second you start that and you start a letter writing campaign uh, with your counterparty, you have to be mindful that you're creating a record for a court in terms of a potential dispute that makes it there. So last question for you both. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't before I let you all go? I wanna give you quick and easy ways to protect yourself from ransomware. Ransomware gets in in typically one of three ways. Number one, they break in through exposed remote login interfaces. Number two, phishing emails. They will send you attachments or links and then a computer in your company gets infected. And then number three, software vulnerabilities in your internet facing software. And there are some really simple things we can all do to protect ourselves. So first, use two-factor authentication and use unique passwords. That means you might want to have a password manager to help you remember them all because the human brain's not designed for that. Um, if you don't need RDP to log in remotely, use a VPN instead. It's, much, it's a much better idea. Make sure you use anti-phishing technologies. Um, humans will, can only do so much to protect against these. I really believe in strong email security software, web proxies, good mail configuration settings, things like that. Make sure you train users regularly to think before they click. And then finally, make sure that software patches, especially on your internet facing systems are, are applied regularly. So those are my tips. Remember the three ways that ransomware gets in and the ways that you can protect yourself. Um, and for me, I think, you know, the, uh, something we talked about a little bit, but I think is, is key to focus in on as a takeaway is um, the obligation under the law sometimes, or just as a good practice that everyone should be doing to do diligence on a regular basis based on risk and business criticality of all the third-party vendors who have or potentially have access to your systems, networks, data, the data of your customers. Um, this is something that people have been talking about for a long time. Um, it's something that I've seen in my practice that folks are starting to take up a little bit more. Um, but 
it needs to really be a focus and, and there's bang for your buck there. I mean, look at the statistics that we have all been discussing and discussed in our last episode. The breaches are coming from third parties. So start with your third parties. Um, and then the second thing that I think, um, you know, understanding your insurance coverage um, and how your insurance coverage is going to change in light of um, the proliferation of ransomware attacks, the new guidance to insurers from the New York Department of Financial Services to start mitigating their own risk. Um, and how are you gonna communicate with your insurers when how to keep privileged things privileged. That's something that would, could definitely be in a whole nother episode and is near and dear to my heart. Um, but that's, those are some of the things that um, I'm thinking about and, and think others would want to keep an eye on as well. Thank you for coming on the show and I appreciate you sharing your thoughts and thank you for chatting cyber. Thanks so much, Mark. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Mark.